Well, hi, and welcome to Beetle Places podcast with Mark and Carl. A one, a two, a one, a two, a nine, a six. Back by popular demand from Mark and Carl, it's the Beetle Places podcast with Mark and Carl. Well, hello everyone. Welcome, everyone, everywhere, and no one else. This is thanks, Governor. This is the Beetle Places podcast with Mark and Carl, and you're very welcome to it. Oh, thank you, mate. So, as promised, and despite all the petitions, we came back uh, to present yet another cantankerous episode of the Beetle Places podcast, presented by your local guides and podcast hosts, Mark and Carl. Uh, that's right, and Hi. the Beetle Places podcast is your regular slice of Beatles miscellany, celebrating the world's greatest band and all things Liverpool. Smashing. Jolly good. Have we got the kettle on ready? Yes. <laughs> Chocolate biscuits all uh, lined up. They're in, yes, they're all right. here, as you can see. I'm ready now. Off we go then, you darn tootin' coal. Here oh. we go. Flex me muscles. Right. Another delightful delivery of Beetle Place's chitty chat, and as usual in each podcast, we'll enjoy an appreciation Talking about the many places and people the Beatles knew here in Liverpool in their formative years and the stories behind them, which we call Beatle Places. That's right. It's a fascinating history and it's our pleasure to tell it. I believe so. Beatle Places is about the band and John, Paul, George, Ringo themselves, where they lived, loved, lost, played, dreamed and lots of other things as well. It's also the name of Cole's excellent book. Oh. Available in all good online retailers. Thank you. Thank you. There's another penny for you, mate. (laughs) Hey, the royalties are racking up, aren't they? Wow. Here we go out tonight. So, like like every good book, let's begin at the beginning and enjoy today's episode of the Beetle Places podcast live from Liverpool. Hooray. After all, this is where it all began and a splendid time is guaranteed for all. Do you know what? He's not wrong often. I'm uh, Colin Gardner, and him over there in the loud pyjamas is Mark Glynister. Hello there, mate. That's me, yes. Hello yourself, and Beetle Places, uh, well, not Beetle Places, and Beetle fans outside of Cold's front parlour. Yes, I'm I'm Mark. Hello, listeners. We come in peace. (laughs) It's nice to be here, but it's also nice to win on the lottery, which I'm still waiting for. Welcome, one and all, to the Beetle Places podcast. And he's not wrong. And in this episode, which we've subtitled, Are You 13 Amp? Ah. We'll have regular features such as the Beetle Places Trivia Quiz, one of Mark's specialities. Let's uh-huh. say how good you are oh, with the Quizmeister himself. Uh, we've also got the Beetle Places Album Guide to the Fab Four, a mix of quotes and mini features about one of their particularly great albums. And also one of Mark's features, resurrects its head again and we're going to look at the month in Beatles history this month in Beatles history followed by the Beatles book review looking at one or two of those worthwhile reads that you should pick up about the Beatles and stuff like that definitely go on then is that it (laughs) yeah well it's your turn to say something is it all right well yes all right then Uh, and of course we'll have a special feature or two this time uh the story behind the yellow submarine movie yeah uh Paul's moped mystery the myths and the made-up bits. Oh. Mm. Then we'll have the random mutterings of Chairman Cole. <laughs> oh, you got you got your hat on for that as well. <laughs> yeah, me big fuzzy one. Yeah, jolly good. Quoting fascinating pieces from his book that uh, I'll ask him. Well, I'll pick for him to read out. So yeah, that, literally randomly. I'll say open the book at page blah blah blah, blah and uh, see what comes up. Yeah. So. Here we go. And of course, don't forget, folks, we'll be chucking in the odd random comments as well. And also, you might wonder what that uh, subtitle's all about. We'll explain what RU13 amp means later. So, on with the motley. First off, it's the Beatles trivia quiz with Mark. This is the Beatle Places podcast with Mark and Col. Please keep your hands inside the vehicle at all times. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever time it is you're listening. Right. Beatles trivia quiz is question number one. Now the questions, I'll read them all out first, three of them, and I'll be coming up with the answers a bit later on, 
So uh, have your pens and papers ready, because here we go. Right. July the 7th, 1964. Can you remember that far back? I Just about. Just can. about. <laughs> uh, uh, Paul bought a house for his dad's 67th birthday. 62nd birthday, sorry. Mm. For uh, £1,200. Which is not bad, really. Well, I've got loose change about that much now, yeah. so yes. Uh, I wish I had. Yeah. Uh, what's the name of the house that he bought for his dad? Okay, mm. so that's question number one. And uh, also, question number two, who took the photo of the Beatles crossing the Zebra Crossing on Abbey Road on the album cover? Anybody name mm. the, that a photographer? And uh, also, question number three, what was the date of the last performance the Beatles did at the Cavern? What date was it? Anybody know that? So, a uh, quick whiz through them again. Please. July the 7th, 1964, Paul bought a, a horse for his dad's 67th... Oh! Get it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, I thought you said house. Did I? Yeah. I'm oh, very sorry. Yeah, it's it a horse. A house doesn't look like a horse, does it? Well, I don't know. From the back, maybe. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I do apologise for that. He bought a horse. Yeah, and you should buy some glasses. Yes. <laughs> Where are you? Uh, I'm over here. Right. Yeah. Paul bought a horse for his dad's 62nd birthday oh, yeah. for £1,200. What was the name of the horse? Uh, Not the house. I thought the house was cheap. The horse. Yeah. 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 Sorry, oh, I, I did write down horse. I just uh, I thought, that says house, but there you go. Uh, question number two. Who took the photo of the Beatles on the Abbey Road album mm. cover? And question three. What was the date of the last performance the Beatles played at the Cavern? In Liverpool. Okay, so uh, that's it. Right out. See who can get them. The Beetle Places podcast with Mark and Carl. Find us under B for Beatles or P for Podcast or A for any old rubbish. Now it's over to Carl for our next feature. Right, you'll like this. I've just in, I've just thought this one up the other day, and I oh. thought we must have it because it's a bit random, and uh, we could get on with some features in just a tick. Because uh, we're going to have regular features, that's it. But this might be a regular feature in times to come. Let's see what you think. Let's go, where am I? Cue strange music. There's no strange music, I haven't got I any. I can't hear a thing. <laughs> yeah, and, and my harpsichord's in the other house. So. Or horse, right. I'm not sure where. <laughs> um, okay, what All I'm right. going to do is, uh, for Mark's sake, I'm going to pluck from my book and I'm going to read out a location. And Mark will have to explain where that location is to the best of his knowledge if he knows anything about Beetle Places. And I might even say who's involved. So these might be clues. So the name might be mentioned, the place uh, description might be given, but I won't tell you where it is, and Mark will have to tell me where he thinks it is. So let's just get something found. Right, I'm ready for this yeah. now. Okay, if you kind of understand the ground rules, there's not much to it. Don't build your hopes up too much. <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally, we're flying by the seat of our lady. This is new tonight. to me, this is new to yeah. me. Yeah, so... Um, Oh, I'm literally, oh, um, I'm literally finding something that sort of fall into his lap. He will not struggle with this one. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll see about but that. We'll see about that. <laughs> so um, let's crack on with. Um, oh yeah. Oh no, I can't mention that on tonight's show. Okay. Um, all right. Who am I talking about? They lived. They lived at. In the last part of their life, at 64 Edelston Road in Crewe in Cheshire. 64 Edelston Road in Crewe in Cheshire. Mm. They were born in 1914 and they married somebody called Elsie Gleaves in 1934. And they had a child. And that child was called Richard. But he moved away to Crewe when he separated from Elsie in 1954. And he went off and he married a lady called Margaret Clark. He had no contact with the family and apparently became a window cleaner or uh, some such. He died in 1981 and he's buried in a place called Middlewich Cemetery. I can give you the uh, name of the cemetery plot, but who is he? 
Who is the person I'm talking about? A fellow born in 1914, married Elsie Gleaves in 1934. They had a son called Richard in 1940, and yet he left the household in 1943. And he left his child behind in 1943. He went off to marry a lady called Margaret Clark. He had no further contact with the family and he stayed in Crewe in Cheshire for the rest of his life. Who am I talking about? Um, Any more clues you want? Um, you've got me there, I think. Oh, have I really? You oh, have, oh, yes. Oh, I didn't really. Okay, uh, well, what was the name of, of, the, of the woman he married? Again? Elsie Gleaves. Gleaves. So she became a different surname when she married this fella. Shall I tell you his first name is Richard? That's Richard Starkey. Richard Starkey is the man, yeah. Richard ah. Henry Parkin Starkey, ah. Ringo's dad. Right. So he was a confectioner, cake maker. He worked at Cooper's in town, which uh, we know as the corn shop opposite McDonald's in town. Uh -huh. And he, um, he just left the household in 1943. Quit, gone, left, no good, never came back. Stayed in Crewe, saw his son become super, super famous, never did anything about it, and he died in 1980s. That's a fellow called Richard Henry Parkin Starkey. Ah, so that was Ringo's and dad. Ringo's dad. Ah. Where am I? There I am, in Crewe. Well, how interesting. <laughs> Just thought I'd try. Maybe that might not come back, I don't know. <laughs> we'll wait well, and see. We, we gave it a go, I gave it a go, so, you know, um, never mind. So, uh, we'll, do, we'll do the proper feature now, which I think Mark has rightly uh, announced. And I interrupted. I'm sorry about that. And <laughs> we're going to look I, at... Should I do it again? Yeah, go ahead. Go right. ahead. I'll have, a I'll have a slurp of tea. Right. What we're going to do now, it's uh, our next feature, the Beatle Places Album Guide. So uh, we pick an album each time we do this programme. And uh, this one, we're doing A Hard Day's Night. We are. Over, over yeah. to you, Carl. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, it's all in the sequence of the albums we've covered so far. So this is the... Fourth album and um, sorry, the third album. Yeah, it's amazing how, how quickly they all went, flew by. But it was it was recorded in February of 1964 and up uh, up until June of 1964, and it was released in July of 1964. And of course, it got to number one, and it was called A Hard Day's Night in conjunction with the movie they made. So the tracks on that third album, uh, if you want to be familiar with them all over again, side one, A Hard Day's Night. I should have known better if I fell. I'm happy just to dance with you and I love her. Tell me why. Can't buy me love. Flip over the album, side two. Anytime at all, I'll cry instead. Things we said today. When I get home, you can't do that. And I'll be back. <coughs> so the longest track on that uh, album was I Should Have Known Better, which is 248. And the shortest track uh, is, is, you'll notice it's short, it's very short. So 147. I'll cry instead. Do you remember any yeah, of them? Mark? I do, yeah, yeah. So I never really timed uh, I'll cry instead. Well, only 147. Yeah, it's yeah. Hard, hardly got going. It could have got going a bit, bit longer, couldn't it, really? <laughs> Neither the verse. I could have helped. Yeah. Um, uh, so I can picture most of the songs being performed in the movie, but I don't remember them all being in the movie. So uh, I think some of them were what, what you may call instrumental versions of themselves. Um, if the movie can be recalled, you can remember Ringo walking along the canal side and they played a few tracks like This Boy and stuff like yeah, that. He I was remember. very drunk that day, I believe. <laughs> yes, I he was, that. apparently. Well, the band was so busy, I'm, I'm not surprised um, that uh, they managed to do all originals for this particular album. Really, really quite, quite a feat. No covers, all originals. So uh, the famous story uh, leading to the title of the film probably doesn't need retelling, but I'll give it a go. Hey, hey ho. Uh, Ringo apparently used it uh, in an expression, one of his malapropismisms. And uh, the, band's loved, the band loved these things, he said. And uh, there was a light bulb moment for John when he heard Ringo say he'd had a hard day's night. So John, that night, wrote the song, and uh, that's what we've got. So don't forget that song that we're talking about had a very famous introductory chord. Uh, and I, I know I like me guitars and stuff like that, so I'm familiar with chords and musical notation, but I can never play that chord. I don't know how it's played because the chord that belongs to the Hard Day's Night song is famous all on its own, even if Paul says he can't remember how to play it. But to me, it sounds like a chord F over a chord G uh, at the same time, but guitar aficionados out there may, may come back and say, oh, no, it's a F suspended diminished eggs over easy Bob's your uncle chord, you know, kind of a fancy... Sounds word. to me like chung. 
Do a leader's <laughs> when you <laughs> chung, yeah, yeah, and off the yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, right, that's it, lads. <laughs> um, but yeah, Mark's right. It's a chung song, a bloody good one though. Um, on the day recording was over, the band returned to the studio to rehearse with stand-in drummer Jimmy Nickel. As two days before the end, Ringo collapsed in a photo session, and. Uh, uh, there was a tour of the Far East uh, up and coming and the band's commitment to perform met, met a Jimmy Nickel had to fill in. And he did fill in for a few weeks, I remember that. So just like with the Beatles' second album, they used Robert Freeman to photograph and do the portrait montage that's been copied so much ever since. So uh, that's a memorable album cover to, to speak of. Um, to me, I think it's a, a really, you know, it's a really nifty album, really... Uh, Tunes galore in it. Uh, the fact it was so good is just a miracle all night. So, considering the pressure the band were under and what they had to commit to uh, in terms of performing everywhere else, but it just complemented the film anyway. And thanks to the good editing and uh, the uh, style of Dick Lester, who could do that sort of uh, editorials, sort of quick and quick and dirty sort of uh, film style that the Beatles liked anyway, because they'd seen his early stuff with Peter Sellers and liked it. Um, I think I think it was a winner all told. So well, he was criticised for uh, filming into the light, wasn't he? With um, was he into uh, into spotlights and stuff like that, and uh. into the light because you couldn't see properly. Yeah. Uh, and he filmed into the, the lights. Stylistically, so it worked though, didn't it? A lot of people do now. Yeah. I think a lot of videos that you know came to the fore in the nineties, eighties, and nineties. Just copied the thing to death. Yeah, you know they copied bits of it anyway. Especially the sort of quick edits and uh, things that worked for the band. But it was, a, it was a funny movie. Pity it was black and white, but I think it needed black and white. I can't explain that in, a, in another way. But it was it was as good as it could be, and it was black and white. Tremendous. Um, I can remember queuing up to see the film as well when it came you? out. Yeah, I can remember standing in a queue. Where it was, I can't remember, mm. but I remember queuing up. Uh, to go and see it. probably Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was just just a good old album, really. But the favourite track on that, I think, um, can't do that. I think because uh, I, I like it because I can play it on my ukulele, um, <laughs> and the film is pretty pretty great too. So more on that because we're going to cover the whole Hard Days Night premiere. We were talking about this just earlier. We're going to cover the uh, a Hard Days Night premiere in Liverpool as a whole show, uh, nothing but, all about A Hard Day's Night, uh, when it began, who, who who decided there should be a premiere in Liverpool, the whole shebang, we'll cover that next time. So there we go, that's it, The Beatles' third album, what an achievement, A Hard Day's Night, 1964, God bless them. So now it's back to Advanced Knee Trembling with Mark Lennister, and this month in Beatle history... Right, well, I'm just diving into the book completely... You stood on a box, I noticed. Yeah, completely um, <laughs> not at rehearse this bit at all or anything like that. So um, I sort of uh, opened the book at any page and just uh, let you know what's going on. And funnily enough, July the 6th, 1964. Oh, well, All right, is that see. okay? Yeah, we, yeah, right yeah don't give it over. Carry as long as it says something interesting. was uh, the premiere of A Hard Day's Night. Um, Piccadilly Circus was closed for traffic as Princess Margaret, Lord Snowden, the Beatles, their wives and girlfriends attended the world premiere of the film uh, at the London Palladium. It oh, was. In London it was, yeah. Yeah, in the London yeah. uh, Pavilion, I mean, not the Palladium, the London Pavilion. Uh, and also on that day, uh, on July the 6th, the single Like Dreamers Do by the Applejacks, which was written by Lennon and McCartney, was re released in uh, the US and um, also the single uh, called Ain't She Sweet Backed With Nobody's Child by the Beatles on the A side and Tony Sheridan and the Beatles on the B side was also released in the US. Well, you, so, you could see you could see there was a um, sort of uh, opportunity there to get rid of all the back catalogue, good or bad. Yeah. And <laughs> get, the, uh, write something. We'll I, get get I it out. I wouldn't say the Applejacks made a bad version of it, but it was just a mediocre song. But uh, uh, yeah, I can't remember that one to be honest. Uh, so, I won't so. sing it to you. I haven't I haven't run a bath. Right. Well, 
I'll go and do one now, then. <laughs> uh, right, and the next little bit, July the 29th, 1965, was another premiere in Piccadilly Circus, outside the London Pavilion again, for the royal premiere of Help. As so, quick, as, uh, quick as that. The Beatles arrived in a black Rolls Royce, um, with Princess Margaret and Lord Snowden, and with Jane Asher as well this time, and she wore a pure white Edwardian-style evening dress, and there was a party afterwards at the Orchid Room of the Dorchester Hotel. Oh, how quaint. I think they had crumpets and uh, a couple of biscuits and a cup of tea. Uh, and Kunzel cake. Yes, very nice. Uh, and John Lennon said, the best stuff on help was on the cutting room floor, with us breaking up and falling up, <laughs> falling all over the place. <laughs> and uh, Paul said, filming help stretched us a bit, giving us a bit more than one line at a time to say. But uh, it wasn't really what the Beatles wanted or Richard Lester wanted, the director, uh, because it it lost his way a little bit on help. But um, he said, John Lennon said about uh, Richard Lester, he forgot about who and what we were, and that's why the film didn't work. It was like having clowns in a movie about frogs. Well, you know, it's a bit bit out there as a statement, but... um, was it enjoyable? Yes, it was. Yeah. Was it musical? Yes, it was. Did we like it? Yes, we did. It's all right. Yeah. Leave yeah. us alone. Go away. Right. Uh, that's a, well, yeah, that help. Do. Help was great. Yeah. Aye. Right. Are you going to uh, redo your book review oh, now? Well, if you've if you've covered the month in Be- this month in Beatle history. Well, I've done two two years, sixty four and sixty five. I can do another one if you like. Go go on. Knock out I'll, one I'll more. I'll dig. Dig in the book. I'm looking through the, a book called uh, The Beatles, A Diary, it's give, give us an early one. So just, just to give an indication. I mean, there they are. go back? There they are celebrating, you know, their greatness at the peak of their powers. So we go to 1963, shall yeah. I? Yeah, yeah. And July... Um, oh, I don't know. July the 10th, 1963. They're travelling all over the place. They were at the Aeolian Hall in London to record two more... Uh, Pop Go The Beatles shows for the sixth programme they did Sweet Little Sixteen, A Taste of Honey Nothing Shaking But The Leaves On The Trees and uh, quite a few others as well and then also they did the seventh programme at the same time as well Uh, they recorded Memphis, Tennessee Do You Want To Know A Secret? Matchbox, Please Mr Postman and had the searchers as their guests and um, then they drove back to Margate in time for the first house uh, at the Winter Gardens Kind of, a quiet, kind of a quiet night, Beatles. Another quiet day for the Beatles, yeah. <laughs> Record two programmes and then clear off to Margate. Blimey. And they were there for, uh, well, on July the 11th as well and July the 12th and the 13th and then left Margate on the 13th of July and headed up to Blackpool then for another show. Uh, well, it's that stamina they got from playing Hamburg so much. I mean, they could do eight yeah. hours, nine hours, <coughs> get uh, playing original so, songs, one after the other, no no repeats. They, they were probably uh, yeah, all over the place yeah. then, because I didn't know what day it was, because mm. on July the 15th, mm. 1963, mm. Paul was fined £17 at Birkenhead Magistrates. Oh, course, yes. For speeding. Yes. In uh, Wallasey. Yes, I've, I've, I've seen the records for that. And he didn't turn up. That's right, and because, and it leads to a huge story, which I may as well mention while we're here, because you're there and I'm here. Aye. He had three driving offences in Birkenhead and Wallasey, and I may have told you about this before, <clears throat> but he got caught speeding, he was going to one gig, got caught speeding, went to another gig, got caught speeding, and uh, lo and behold, three strikes and you're out, he got banned, got banned from driving. So... Just, just uh, seeing how lucky Paul is with things as they followed, he was banned from driving. He had a chauffeur drive him everywhere after that for a year because he was banned. And the chauffeur was talking to him one day in the car and when Paul said, how's your day been? He says, oh, so busy. I've been working eight days a week. Yeah. Ka-ching! There we go again. One song in the pan. So um, he did all right out of being banned from driving, but uh, when he did come back to driving, he bought himself a brand new Aston Martin. And you can't complain about that, can no, you? No, no. no. I Very often nice. think I, I should do that, but um, I'll get round to it. Yeah. 
<laughs> Cheers, Mark. Thanks very much for covering the, this month in Beatle history. He's very good at that, isn't he? Yes, right. I think so too. Your turn now. Yeah, um, I'm going to look at the Beatles book review, and I'm covering one book in particular. It's uh, it's an unusual, it's a bit of a sort of niche book for Beatles fans. It's the Beatles Gear by a fellow called Andy Babiuk, and uh, I stumbled across this book a little while ago. And it's for people who are music, musos, just love the equipment they used, um, what uh, machinery they used, how they got the sounds they got, how they turned it into music, uh, what things they've still got, what they're worth. And uh, I, I've loved it because I like to know, you know, how many frets are on a certain guitar, how cheap was the first guitar they got. It's quite surprising how they got through Hamburg with the tattiest guitars you've ever heard. Um, and yet they survived. Um, if I look at the book in historical order, we start even at the beginning when we're talking about, and I'm flicking through the book as we speak, we're talking about the, uh, the beginnings of loving music and John John Lennon's auntie, Auntie Mimi, got him a guitar called a Galatone and she got it mail order and later on they got a proper one from Hesse's, the music store in Liverpool town. Um, there's a picture of it here or there's a version of one in front of me and uh, as it would have looked it says here and it just looks like a sort of a kid's toy of a guitar really um but yeah skiffle phrase took over everybody wanted a guitar and he got one he really got one and the famous quote was that um he'd only been so used to playing banjos his mother had a banjo and his grandfather george had a banjo and his mum taught him didn't, didn't and his she? mother taught him yep. banjo it's only got five strings so he'd only tuned five strings on his six string guitar and people used to laugh at him because they saw the six string flapping away like billio so it just goes and goes and goes there's even a feature uh, because people will um, certainly hold on to these things as important music memorabilia we've got Stu Sutcliffe's guitar in the 1960 phase Stu, Stu Sutcliffe was never a, a musician to speak of, but he got involved. He was in the Beatles, no question about that, but he was an artist first and foremost. And his own bass guitar, which he got with some of the proceeds from his art prize in Liverpool, um, is, is featured here and mentioned here. The actual one is uh, photographed here and uh, it looks okay. It's a Hofner. It's a, a, it's a Hofner 333, and it, it's just a lovely little bass guitar. It was sold at auction, but I could not tell you how much it got sold for. But Andy Babiuk is great because he's managed to get hold of things like uh, receipts, higher purchase agreements, you name it. Um, the, the facts are where that nobody really owned the musical equipment they were buying when they were very young. They got them on what they call the knock or the HP, higher purchase. And sometimes they did it through devious means. Um, there was a guarantor required for most of the musical instruments that uh, the band bought, George especially. And because they were starting to mingle with the art crowd that John knew, uh, they got a friend of his uh, who was called Adrian. And Adrian signed as a guarantor for their musical instruments, higher purchase agreements. The poor fella, if, if only he'd known, if they never kept up the payments, he would end up paying for the rest of it. He may have known better, but um, that's another story about another chap. But the, um, the, the whole book historically covers all the guitars, especially uh, a little story about John's uh, Rickenbacker, which he got when bought in Hamburg in the early second second time they did a residency out there and uh, John got a lovely guitar called a Rickenbacker Capri 323 I think it was or 363 lovely looking thing but he, he played it so much he wore out the he wore out the finish on the guitar it needed sprucing up so when Brian Epstein took over he managed to get the the guitar uh, into the hands of somebody. He said, "I'll I'll repaint that for you," and he was a, a coach builder, guy guy a guy who paints buses, and uh, like that. and the guitar yeah. was lent by John Lennon to this friend of his, whose dad ran a haulage company in Birkenhead, and he said, "Can this be resprayed?" And it was sprayed black, but it was black the black he'd have on a bus. Uh, or a van, or something like that. Uh, and um, the, the fellow who sprayed it was uh, mentioned by Andy Babiuk in the book as well. And uh, he's, he's found so much about the instrumentations and uh, the amps, uh, all the variations of Paul's 
bass guitars. His first Hofner bass was stolen, unfortunately. So uh, he relied on his second and he's had many more since then. I'm certain of that. And we're talking about every kind of instrument to speak of, right up until something like the Mellotron that was used and the early synthesizers George bought from, brought back from America around the time he was producing Jackie Lomax's record and uh, uh, playing around with Abbey Road. So um, the whole book is only about the instruments, but it mingles in the history of the band. It's called Beatles Gear. It's lovely. Uh, it's a great book, worth a read, especially if you love your musical instruments. And um, I couldn't tell you who produced it because I've lost the cover years back. Ah. Um, <laughs> published but, by. But, uh, published by. Um, uh, you got me. It's a called. It's on. Excuse me, gathering my breath. It's published by Backbeat Books. Ah. And uh, just to say it's worth reading is Mark Lewison, the god of Beatles history. He has put a forward in this and he knows how good this book is because he knows this stuff. And uh, it's great. Beatles gear, Andy Babiuk. Thank you. Super. Excellent. Right then. Glad you approve. I do, I do. Uh, and the book I'm going to uh, review is uh, published by uh, HarperCollins. It came out in uh, 2010. I see you keep, your cover, you keep the covers on yours. I, I lose do. mine in about you, a fortnight. They always float away down, <laughs> down the, in the bath. <laughs> I've noticed. Um, yeah, this was published in uh, 2010, written by Howard Soonis, and uh, it's called Fab, An Intimate Life of Paul McCartney. And it starts off, uh, well, very... When he was born, really. You can't yeah. get any earlier than that. Um, and it, it's quite a thick book. We've got about uh, 600 pages. And there's some nice photographs in it as well. Uh, some older ones with um, uh, in colour with uh, Yoko. and well, He's up to date with his wives, I see. And Heather yeah. and the Queen as well. He's got the Queen in there, posing very nicely. He never married her, did he? Uh, no. Oh, no. oh. Uh, there's some nice pictures with his uh, daughters as well, and a, a rather startling T-shirt, I've just noticed. Yes. Um, and uh, some pictures of uh, when they came to Liverpool as well, uh, with wings in uh, 1979, some nice pictures there. But uh, he's really dug away at uh, all the little bits that uh, Sir Paul, as we should say, he is now, um, has done, and he's, he's, he's done a very good... Uh, write up on it and also the songs he wrote as well. The book cost, uh, well, back in 2010 it cost £20. I can't remember if I paid that much for it or not. I can't remember now. It's quite a while ago. But uh, that's one I can recommend. It's called Fab, An Intimate Life of Paul McCartney, written by Howard Soonis. Uh, if you can get it, go out and get it now. So there you go, really. Well, I can't I, go into it too much because uh, I'll be here all night. Because yeah. <laughs> it's quite a thick book, as I say. Um, yeah, well, that's the thing. If, if it's a good Beatles book, a good biog, it grips you. Um, some of the others are so sort of flawed with mistakes and uh, gloss, glossy stuff that doesn't count um, that you, you could say, yeah, we, maybe next time we could cover uh, one or two books which aren't so great and, and we'll tell you why. So we may do that next, next time around. Aye. So thanks, Mark. That was a good review. Absolutely. Yeah. So there we are. We're done. We've covered the Beatles book review and we'll do another one on the next podcast. It's the Beatle Places podcast with Mark and Col. We haven't planned the show, so nothing can go wrong. Right, here we are, and uh, we're going to re repeat in the uh, the quiz questions first. Oh, please, yeah. And uh, then I'll give you the answers, maybe. Uh, well, I'll do I'll do me feature after that, matey. Oh, all right then. Uh, well, yeah, answers later on. So oh, we'll yes. just do the questions again that please. I did earlier on. Yeah. Uh, July the seventh, nineteen sixty-four. Okay, Paul bought a horse for his dad's sixty-second birthday. Not a house. Not a house. A horse. Uh, he paid £1,200 for it. Uh, I would like to know what was the name of the horse that uh, he bought his dad. And uh, the next question, who took the photo of the Beatles walking across the zebra crossing on the cover of Abbey Road? I'd like to know that photographer's name, please. And finally, 
What was the date of the last performance the Beatles played at the Cavern? I would like to know that as well. Good sweep of questions there. Quite Answers coming up a bit later on, yep. but now it's back to him over there. Oh, thanks very much. Jack. He, uh, you'll get to know me by and large. Especially large. Yes, um, feature time. We're going to cover the Yellow Submarine movie. Uh, we've talked about movies already a little bit already today. Help, Hard Day's Night. The Beatles were committed to a third movie and um, we're going to talk about a yellow submarine. Um, mostly about the voiceover actors who certainly get no mention at all as far as I can tell from uh, most books. But let's, let's, uh, let's cover the ground and uh, I won't keep you long. Giving unemployed, good-looking, tall, handsome well-groomed voiceover artists, a bit of part-time work. It's the Beetle Places podcast with Mark and Col. Is that all right? Yes, it's fine. Thanks. L- thank you. Yeah. Next. So, the movie was The Yellow Submarine, or Yellow Submarine. Made in 1968, or came out in 1968. The Beatles had already made two movies up to 1967, and contractually they had to deliver another one. And this they did, kind of. Uh, the result was the 1968 animated classic, Yellow Submarine. It was it was directed by Canadian George Dunning, who'd uh, overseen all the sort of, uh, TV cartoon versions of the Beatles that were made by a company called TVC in London, and uh, I think somebody in Australia was involved as well. They're all out there if you can find them on the internet. The uh, movie itself, however, was quite artistic and more imaginative and creative than anyone could have expected, really, including the band, because uh, they didn't kind of get very involved in it, all told. It was clever, it was psychedelic, it was funny, it was scary. Uh, As a kid, I could tell it was scary. I don't know about you, Mark. Hmm. Um, uh, but but certainly, it, it, it instant classic is is the word I would use, and especially for kids and grown ups. And the soundtrack well, wasn't half bad, really, considering the tracks they plucked out. Um, admittedly, the bands weren't very proactive in making the movie. They they, were, they offered a few songs up, but none not they'd admit would be their good stuff. So the the movie followed like cartoon versions of themselves. So the Beatles really didn't even have to act in it and only appearing in the last two minutes at the end as a coda uh, in a sort of a cheeky send-off, which I think they enjoyed by the looks of it. Uh, they were far too busy as musicians to do it themselves in terms of voiceovers and stuff. So that was left to some just actors who could mimic their accents. Quite faithfully and luckily, it happens, they were all scousers. Uh, there was a fellow called Paul Angelis, there was a fellow called Peter Batten, and a fellow called Geoffrey Hughes. Now, the last fella... Oh, the, the first and the last fella are quite well known in um, TV, British TV. Uh, they have do, done other things since then. Luckily, the director hired three Liverpudlians to do those jobs, so th- the accents came through. Um, they also hired a, a famous comedy actor called Dick Emery and another famous comedy actor who me and Mark like called Lance Percival. Uh, and another guy called John Clive, just to help with all the other voices like the captain and uh, I can't think of... Uh, what was uh, what the other ones were, but Dick Emery was uh, uh, Jeremy, wasn't he? So he was the little uh, little man who Ringo helped. Uh-huh. Um, but to be honest, the script was helped along by a, a decent dose of Scouse humour from another Scouser called Roger McGuff, and he was uh, in the band that Mike McCartney was in called The Scaffold. And luckily, Roger, being a poet and good with words and being a Scouser, he contributed lots of great lines to the film. If you remember the School of Wales joke in there, I don't know if you do. Um, Paul Angelis introduced George Dunning to Roger when he read the first script and and Roger kind of knew it needed improving. But however, Roger was uncredited in the movie because his his name doesn't appear in the credits, but he was paid. and uh, I think that's been told a few times. You'll pay quite a bit, to be honest. So the whole movie cost about a quarter of a million pounds to make, and it took 200 people to make it. 
including London art students who worked uh, on lots of early shifts and early weird shifts to just, just to get it done in time. And the movie has lots of modern references to pop art and surrealism and optical illusions, comic art, lots of things like that. Uh, and generally uh, gave some excellent caricatures of the bands themselves, which you can buy now, because if you go to shops, you can often buy Yellow Submarine memorabilia. Very famous stuff. And uh, I like Captain Fred. And, of course, the Blue Meanies, they were great too. So famously, the producers didn't kind of understand that the movie needed sort of Liverpoolian actors. And they they were going to go down the route of using American actors, but the, the actors themselves flatly refused to help and their persistence kind of paid off. Uh, but it wasn't public, publicly announced that the actors had done voiceovers. Uh, most people assumed the Beatles had done it. And uh, in the end, the, beat, the, the producers of the movie uh, finally relented and put the names on the credits. So it took 15 months, lots of work, and the premiere was July, back to July again, Mark, mm. of 1968. And it, it got great acclaim. It's still a classic. And uh, credit is due to Roger McGuff for rewriting all those lines in the movie and the voiceover artist who delivered some really key, great performances. So I'll very quickly mention the three actors who I should deserve a mention, and one of them isn't an actor. So you'll figure that out in a sec. First one was Paul Angelis, who was brought up in uh, Woodruff, speak, Woodruff Street in Dingle, not far from Ringo's home. So the accent was clearly going to happen. He played the voice of Ringo, the chief blue meanie, and the narrator. Remember that narrator's voice in it? It's very mm. eerie, isn't it? Uh, later in the production, he had to voice George Harrison because uh, the other actor and uh, the other voiceover actor, Peter Batten, had to leave the movie abruptly, um, dot, dot, dot. So Paul is famous, uh, Paul Angelis is famous for other roles, as well as his brother Mike Angelis. And Mike Angelis took over the Thomas the Tank Engine voiceovers when Ringo quit. <coughs> just, a, just a fact. Um, the other guy uh, involved who played Paul in the movie was Geoffrey Hughes. Uh, Jeff Hughes uh, lived in a place called Norris Green in Liverpool 11, but originally he was born in Wallasey in 1944, and he moved out to North Liverpool as a boy. So he, he was actually in a band himself at the time uh, Mersey Beat was up and coming. Uh, he was in a band called the Moon Rockers around the fifth, late 50s, and he had a job actually in a car dealer's next door to the Mersey Beat premises run by Bill Harry. Um, so Jeff got the acting bug in the early 60s and he played in local theatres and eventually ended up in the West End in London and uh, Paul actually saw him in a play at one time. Um, it just coincidentally, Jeff played the voice of Paul in the movie. Uh, he later went on to become a very famous comedy actor, as you may remember. Can, can we think of it? Um, which, which... He was in... He, he played uh, um, in... Um, I can't remember. What's the name of the programme now? I know the one you mean, yeah. Yes, the one. Yeah, was. yeah. Um, ever peculiar circles. No, it was. Um... <laughs> no, I know who he was. Yeah, yeah. He, he also is also in Coronation, Coronation Street, Street as well. Yeah, he's in Coronation Street a uh, quite a long time actually, quite a few years. And, well, um... lo lo lovely guy uh, and a good comedy actor. He was in the Royal Family too, so uh, let's not forget how great he was in that. The other actor who played the voice of George Harrison in the movie. Like I said, wasn't an actor. He had a very strange background. His name is Rodney Peter Batten, born in Liverpool in 1942. And um, strangely, he was, and if my research is right, he went to Dovedale Road School, where, where John and George uh, went as kids, as well as Ivan Vaughan. Uh, he was, seems to have been in the same class as Ivan Vaughan, so he may have seen George or Paul as a child, uh, but he left halfway through that and he went to go off and live in a place called Wallasey. Uh, Mark knows that well. Um, and by all accounts, he was an accidental actor because as film folklore uh, reveals, he was found in a pub in London um, being quite loud and scouse. And he was noticed by one of the movie producers in the using the voice he had. And... Um, he came over and and convinced him to take part in the film. But the truth about him was that he was actually a Lance Corporal from the army and he deserted. Um, but nevertheless, he was hired. He was paid £50 a day, happily went along with it. And um, he was doing all right. He wasn't doing too badly. And he was uh, uh, getting on famously with a lot of the people in the company. And he started flirting with the editors and, and so forth. 
But it all came to an abrupt end when the military police found him <laughs> and took him away. Ah, oh, that spoiled it for so him. Was, yeah. So that left the movie with a lot of George stuff still to do. So yeah. luckily, Peter Angelis, being a very good actor uh, and a scout to boot, he uh, filled in. And can you tell the difference? I couldn't tell the difference. Well, I'd have to have a listen again and see. Yeah, but he's there, Peter Batten anyway. So, um, And what became of him after that? Nobody knows, because nothing or, or little or nothing has been heard of him since. And he's never really cashed in on his fleeting fame. So uh, that was him, and they were those. And that was all about the Yellow Submarine movie, 1968, in Apple by Apple Films. And uh, that's it, Mark. Cheers, my dears. Oh, marvellous. Call have another British, uh, British, another Beatles feature God in just a tick. Oh, this, co- this cocoa is very mm. strong, isn't it? Um, first, though, uh, we're going to try out a new segment to this uh, podcast thing, whatever you call it. Uh, this is a feature called The Random Mutterings of Chairman Coll. That's what he's called it, anyway. Uh, so in each show, I'll give uh, Coll a chance... Well, not much of a chance, really. No, I've never had much of a chance, really, have no. I? Let's be uh, honest. Right, to read out an item or two from his Beetle Places book, okay. which uh, we plug every now and then. It, uh, here's so the book. That's there the book. Yeah, it's not a brick. So uh, I'll select a page at random, or, or tell Cole when to stop flicking yep. through it. So uh, he's going to flick through his weighty tome, flick through the pages, and when I say stop, he reads out a portion of the book. So uh, it may be worthwhile or just a waste of time, we don't know, but uh, are you ready? Flex for your muscles. Yes, I am. A uh, drum roll. Does it help to wear these leotards? Here we go. Right. Flicking, flicking, flicking. Stop. No, I haven't said stop yet. Oh, flicking, flicking, flicking. Keep flicking. Stop. Oh, right. I'm in the middle of stuff. Oh, Can we well, flick go a bit? F- back a bit then, that's it. Stop there. That'll Great. Do. Right. Okay. Off you oh, go. Interesting, this one. Ah, Right, what does this mean to you? Not Nothing or something. Go on. Captain Robert Woods. Never heard of him. 47, Northwest Herculaneum Dock, Dingle, Liverpool 3. Ah. What's Ca- the Beatle connection What in was that? his name again? Captain? Captain Robert Woods. Ah. Um, it's, a, it's a nice story, you like this. Uh, from the Dingle. From the Dingle. But it's the Herculaneum Dock. The Herculaneum Dock. Now that's is. the dock side, isn't it? Uh, it is. Um, Where the so docks are. Something to do with the Yellow Submarine? No. No cigar with that one. I'm sorry, mister. Uh, I give up, then. OK. All right. Well, uh, let, let's get it said. Go on. Sometime in 19, uh, late 1953, after Paul had joined Liverpool Institute... He had a friend there called Michael Woods in his first year class, 3C. His father was a captain, Robert Woods, and he was the dock master of Herculaneum Dock. Aye. That's a, what they call a graving dock. And I think it's got nothing to do with food. No, um, that's a but, gravy um, dock. It's situated in a place called West Toxteth. Not very far from where Ringo's neighbourhood is. And uh, right up until the late 1960s, it was a very active dock. So I think what happens is uh, boats and ships came in, they were unloaded or Aye. treated and uh, sent on the way. Repaired from, and stuff yeah. and off they went again. OK, so Paul has often recalled that as a young lad, he uh, spent the night down at Herculaneum Dock. And that's because his schoolmate actually lived there, this Michael lad. So Paul has mentioned on several occasions since since that he was learning Spanish at school from his teacher called Mr. Pegleg Killingly at the time. And so when a Spanish boat docked in Herculaneum Dock that night and he, he turned up with his mate Mike and always on the lookout to improve himself, he talked to the crew on board tried and tried to speak their language. And he used the phrase, here we go with me and my phrases, non rapidamente which isn't really Spanish, it's not Spanish at all almost, but it means not quickly. And it's to do with because um, he was not talking, he was he was asking people to talk slower. Ah, when so they were he talking could understand to him. them. Yeah. So he used the phrase non rapidamente. Ah. Okay, maybe he still uses it, I don't know. Yeah. So um, while, he, while he stayed over that night, he also recalled 
the seeing a Spanish crew member getting a haircut. I talk about why not memories. Yeah, that's a weird one, isn't it? Yeah. But I found that out, and um, I thought you'd like it. Oh, very good. Random Jotterings, part one. Absolutely. Well, that was uh, rather good. <laughs> so, cheers, Mark. Thanks for your uh, thanks for your compliments. That's all right. Play us backwards, and it still doesn't make any sense. Beatles Places podcast with Mark and Cole. Okie dokie and other chirpy phrases. My piece of paper now says it's ah. time to catch up with Mark again because uh, he's back from the tanning salon and he's dre- <laughs> and he's dressed, uh, well, half-dressed. Half-dressed. To, g- <laughs> to give us back the answers we were craving for, the fiendish Beetle Places trivia quiz. Here on Beetle Places with Mark and Cole. God bless you, governor. Thank you. Here, Mark. Right. right. I'm all ears, but I'm mostly nose. Carry on. Right. The questions were... Number one. Paul bought a horse for his dad's 62nd birthday on uh, July the 7th, 1964. He paid £1,200 for it. Any idea of the name of the Gigi that he bought? Mm-mm. Um, I do know. Yeah. You do know? Yeah. Right. Drake's drunk. Correct. Well done. <laughs> it came second in its first race as well. Oh, right. Uh, where it came after that, I don't know. <laughs> but it came second in its first race. Probably kept on going. So, uh, <laughs> Never came back. <laughs> and apparently he showed a photograph of the horse to his dad. Mm. And uh, he said, Dad, I've got you this. He said, what do I want with a photograph of a horse? <laughs> so... <laughs> No, you silly person. Yes. It's the horse I bought you, so there you go. Uh, That was it. So Drake's Drum is the name of Ah, the horse. Uh, Question number two was, and still is, who took the photo of the Beatles on the Abbey Road album cover? Where they're walking across the Zebra Crossing. Yeah, that's the famous six pictures, isn't it? So um, uh, Ian somebody. Uh, It is Ian, yeah. Uh, Mac... Somebody, Ian uh, yeah, Mac, somebody. Very nearly, very nearly. McTavish. Ian. No. Mac- Mac- Macmillan. Is Ian uh, Macmillan. Ian Macmillan. Was. Okay, that sorry was about that. Photographer. How much he got for doing that photograph, uh, I do not know. But, well, uh, a lot of work. It's, uh, got a lot it's of work done him very that. good. Must have uh, been a few nights out for, after that. Yeah, well, uh, Right, finally, question number three was, what was the date of the last performance the Beatles played at the Cavern? Ah. Have you any idea? Got me there. Um, I could tell you what guitar George played. It wasn't his regular one. Was it 62? 62, 62, and it was at June. No. Completely wrong. Great. Uh, you're a year out. It was August the 3rd, 1963. God, as late as that. It was. Uh, they played there almost 300 times. Mm. Uh, and the first time they played which is uh, in 1961, quite a significant date, really. Uh, it's February the 9th, which is my birthday. So the first time they played... It is. <laughs> it is for me, otherwise I wouldn't be here. <laughs> uh, so August the 3rd, 1963, was the last time they played the Cavern. I, I knew it. I knew it got that slightly wrong. And the first time was February the 9th, 1961. So 300 times they played oh, there. Nice. Well, that, the, the thing I, I'm familiar with is Brian Epstein would um, would never like hike their fees, even when they were super famous, no. because he'd committed to these like little gigs. Yeah. And even the cabin was probably only going to pay him a couple hundred quid for them, compared to you know with thousands they could have earned elsewhere. But yeah, historically, I, I clean forgot. So thanks, Mark. There you go. There we are with the answers to the Beetle Places trivia quiz. Beetle Places podcast with Mark and Col. Is there no beginning to their talent? Our second feature in this podcast is quite an interesting one. It revealing the, flac- the facts, even, behind the, uh, the rumour that Paul is dead. Mm. The Paul is dead myth. Yeah, well, the, the flacks are, uh, are there to be seen, and the facts are there as well. Um, Paul is dead. It's a myth. It was to do with the McCartney moped accident. So let's go back. Um, Paul was staying 
Christmas time, 1965, he was staying with his dad uh, and his horse and his <laughs> brother at his new home in Heswell in the Whittle, a place called Rembrandt, which uh, we, we go past quite a lot, don't we? We, see we that, do, we've yeah. been putting down there. Yeah. So um, there he was living uh, for Christmas. He'd come over Crimbo and uh, he, he had the company of a friend. He had uh, invited up a new friend to come up and spend Christmas there. Boxing Day, I think he came up. A fella called Tara Brown. He came from London. Tara had uh, driven up from London with his wife, Nikki, on Boxing Day. And he was arrived at the home uh, that afternoon to stay a few days. Because Paul said, let's stay. So um, Tara's background was uh, he was the heir to the Guinness drink uh, family. And he was uh, just a young thing, but he was very much a flamboyant type of chap. So we'll go into that in a bit more detail another time. But there he was, he was uh, popped up to see Paul because he's one of his brand new friends, super famous friend at that. And while Paul was home on a rare break, they took the opportunity, him and Paul, Tara and Paul, to go and visit some of Paul's relatives. And uh, some of Paul's relatives are called the Robbins family. And they live in an area of the Whittle called Bebbington. So uh, what happened was he was going to come up, uh, Paul and Tara were going to visit his cousin Bet and family who just lived nearby. So they borrowed a couple of little mopeds and they decided to visit the relatives a couple of miles away, just three miles away, in a place called Mount Road, Bebbington. Look it up, folks. It's there. It really is there. I could even tell you he hired the mopeds from a place called Cameron's Cycle and Sons. Uh, in Neston in Cheshire. Ah, so uh, I gather that he didn't go to the shop and tingling and get them. I'm sure they were got for them, but that's another story. But he got them from Cameron Cycles. Um, and what what there is, what's debatable here is which way did he go to get to his cousin's house in Bebbington from Heswell? Uh, there's two possible routes there. From Heswell to Bebbington, they both go along the countryside. Uh, one is along a place called Brimstead Road, and the other is along a place called Barnston Road. Uh, both are quite straight, as, as runs go, so it wouldn't have been too much of a struggle to find it, um, on mopeds even, at the speed they were going. So the thing is, the Barnston op option offered them a pub on the way called the Fox and Hounds in Barnston. And uh, I believe they stopped somewhere for a refresher. And that might have been the very place. And we've been there ourselves, haven't we? Numerous times. Mm. Numerous times. So uh, the other route was pub-free. Boo! <laughs> so Paul says that uh, um, when they were riding these mopeds, it was a nice moonlit night. And Paul was ahead of Tara in the road. So uh, when they... And if, if you've ever done this road, it's only like two big, long sort of country lanes... Uh, which you basically have to point and shoot the moped and you're practically in Bebbington before you know it. But um, they followed this route and for some reason, uh, there was a nice clear night, moonlit and everything. By his own fault, Paul fell off his moped. He hit the kerb, cut his lip, banged his head and even chipped a front tooth. So the poor fellow was in the right state. <clears throat> so he did make it home. He made it to the Robin's home in a place called Mount Road, Bebbington. And um, they, le they leapt into action and they called, on boxing night and all, think about it, they called a local doctor who was a friend. And this was a fellow called Dr. James Jones, uh, who lived in an area of the Whittle called Upton. And his nickname was Dr. Pip Jones. Um, quite kind of a character fella, really. Um, I've, I've read a bit about him since, but he was a local general practitioner who ran a a practice in Upton in the Whittle. And I think for all intents and purposes, he looked after Paul's uncle, Uncle Albert, and his wife, Millie. So um, they knew him that way, and the family knew the doctor from that. So they called this fella up, and he came around, and he tended to Paul in the Robin's home. He didn't go to a hospital or anything. So uh, there is a picture of Paul on the internet where you can see him quite badly cut up and bruised from the, uh, from the event anyway. So the doctor came along... Um, uh, the back history of Dr. Pip was he'd been a doctor on a ship on the Queen, Queen Elizabeth. He also had something to do with Liverpool University. He was a bit of a local character and a renowned after-dinner speaker. So he may have often talked about this little incident to people when he'd done dinners and stuff like that. Anyway, getting back to the story. Um, on that night, without anaesthetic, uh, he stitched up Paul's head and his lip 
And considering how, how famous he was, he didn't want to kind of spoil his looks. But, you know, these things are to be done. Paul got his tooth fixed a lot, lot later than, um, than that. Because if ever you get a chance to see the paperback writer video, you can see him with his broken tooth in the video. Uh, for some reason, um, he didn't care. And it's, it's, a, it's apparent in the video. Um, what he did do is he, he was very conscious of the scar he had on his lip. And he, uh, as a result, he grew a moustache, a muzzy, to cover it up. And he looked a bit like Sancho Panza when he, it was all quite good and finished. And uh, his bandmates liked it. And as far as I could tell, he set off a trend, as did a few others who kind of started to grow moustaches. Man. Yeah, I've grown a moustache as well. Oh, well, yeah, uh, I'm thinking yeah. about it. I'm thinking uh -huh. about it. So, uh, like I say, you'll see pictures of Paul with his bruised um, face online, but also you'll see this broken tooth version of Paul in the paperback writer video. But um, it all stemmed from him falling off his moped like an idiot, Boxing Nights, 1965. And uh, he did make it back, and uh, after that, people thought he'd been killed, but he was not killed. He just had a nasty fall. And, uh, of course, all the interpretations of this came via the Sergeant Pepper sleeve. And um, as in my opinion, my humble opinion, it is uh, quite a lot of grade A codswallop. Here endeth the sermon. Also on uh, the, the Abbey Road album where he didn't have shoes on. Mm. That was another thing where he, they said he was dead, wasn't it? Well, uh, it's, it's anything to stoke the fire of speculation, uh, isn't it? And, um, somebody starts a rumour, off it goes. Mm. Well, so, there you go. That's my stuff. Yeah. Paul is dead. Codswallop. Right. Because he's 80 now, and he's proven he's around. So, oh, he is, eh? Yeah. Well, Rumours of my death have been misconceived. Something like that. Something like that. Right, so thanks, Cole. That's, okay. Uh, it's no, not true what they say. I'll, I'll shred that portion. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. Um, as soon as we're done here, right, here we go. Are we ready now? Uh, I, I think we are. The script's run out, mate. Yeah, uh, so there it was. We're done. We're dusted. And we hope you enjoyed it. What there was of it, we talked a bit today, didn't we? So we thanks did. very much for listening in. Hope you appreciated it. Ah, that's it for another go at this podcasting lark thing. Hope we passed the audition, as John said. If you like it, get in touch, and we'll try and do another one. Uh, if you don't get in touch, we're going to do one anyway. So, uh... so now it's time to toodle our pips, and we'll come back soon enough with yet another edition of the Beetle Places podcast for your wonderment and delectation. With all the usual features, and next time we'll have... The Lexicon of Liverpool. Now, what on earth is that? Ooh. And I'll be talking about the Beatles schools and the school teachers. So, uh, in the meantime, remember, don't we don't take ourselves too seriously. And uh, I hope you don't either. Uh, oh, you're not. <laughs> no, not, no. Uh, so, so that's enough of me. And uh, that's enough of him. Try for now. Uh, Cue the banjo. One, two, three. Ahem. Thanks for listening to the Beetle Places podcast with Mark and Col. We hope to see you again real soon. And don't forget to visit the gift shop on the way out.